Please turn with me to John chapter 10 as we return to our series on the I Am things of Jesus. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. We've taken a little break from our series on the I Am sayings of Jesus, and this evening we return looking at him as our good shepherd. Last time we looked at what it means for him to be the door, meaning that he opens the door to salvation opens the door to heaven and he also is our doorway to an abundant life right here right now and when you enter through the door you become part of the flock of God you become part of the church of God and so naturally that sermon focused more on the flock and on the church well this evening we'll be looking at the shepherding aspect of Jesus's ministry remember up to this point Jesus has been having a conversation with the Pharisees, a back-and-forth conversation. And the Pharisees were harassing a blind man whom, they just, whom Jesus just healed in chapter 9. And eventually the blind man is thrown out of the synagogue. And then Jesus stumbles upon the blind man, and he encourages him. And he tells him that really the reason why he healed the blind man is to show this greater spiritual reality that the Pharisees are the ones who are blind. The Pharisees overhear their conversation and you can imagine how mad and offended they got. Then Jesus proceeds to give a mini parable about them. And so that's what we have, that's what we're looking at in chapter 10 verses 1 through 19. And the purpose of him claiming to be the good shepherd um, verses 11 through 19, what we're looking at this evening, is to illustrate he's the Messiah, and he's come to do something no one has done before him. He's come to perfectly lead, rule, and love God's people. And that's the main point. But it's interesting because the way that he leads and rules and loves his people is not expected 
It's an unconventional way of loving people. And we'll see that throughout our outline. So with the claim to be the good shepherd, Jesus tells us three things about who he is and what he's come to do. He reveals his relationship with the Father. He reveals his radical love for his people. And finally, the radical mission he came to accomplish. So the relationship with his, with his Father, the radical love that he has, and the radical mission he came to fulfill. And we'll be spending most of our time on the radical love he has for his people. And so Jesus claims to have a unique relationship with the Father that no one else has. And I want you to note that this relationship is a covenantal relationship. Imagine, if you will, that you own a company and you need someone to manage day-to-day -day operations. You need someone to um, manage the staff and, and manage um, the daily responsibilities of your company. And so you hire someone and one day a criminal comes in. Many criminals come in. And they begin to cause havoc. They begin to turn over tables and, and steal money. And then that person that you hired, when things got tough, they just ran away. They just left. And th that's what we're dealing with here in our text. In verses 11 and 12, Jesus continues his rebuke against the Pharisees. And he says, they're, they're like the hired hand. They only are motivated by money. They're not motivated by genuine love for God's people, but by the benefit they can get out of them, by the status they receive from them. And Jesus is saying in our text that he is not like that at all. He has a, he's motivated by a special relationship that he has with the Father. He un, they understand one another. He says, I know the Father and he knows me. And the Father appointed Jesus to do a work, to complete something. And that's what we see in verse 18. This charge I received from my Father. And really this charge, this word for charge, can be translated commandment. So it would read, this commandment I received from my Father. Well, what is the commandment that he received from his Father? The commandment is really the entire Good Shepherd discourse from verses 11 to 19, where he says he will eventually lay his life down for the sheep. And he repeats this four times. Verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life. Verse 18, I lay it down of my own accord. And so he wants to make it abundantly clear that what it means for him to be the good shepherd is that he's willing to die for those whom he cares about. The father told Jesus, go and take care of my sheep. I want you to redeem them from their sin. And Jesus responds with obedience even unto death. And theologians often refer to this special relationship and agreement that the father and the son have as the covenant of redemption. They'll say the Father and the Son have a contract. They've come to an agreement to redeem a people out of the world, out of sinful humanity, from, from before the foundation of the world. And the Father chose his only Son to do that work. And far from being a technical doctrine that 
seminarians and academics talk about, I want you to derive real comfort from this doctrine this evening. It ought to comfort you because it means that your salvation is not a last resort. It's not plan B for God. But the very reason you are saved right now is because there was a plan before you were born, before the heavens and the earth were even created, to bring you to salvation. And that's amazing, isn't it? And if there was a plan to save you before you were ever born, then that means whatever happens after you are born will not mess that up. It means God has already taken into, the, into account your sin. He's already factored in your rebellion, already factored in your suffering. It did not take him by surprise. And there's nothing in this world that can undo or hinder that plan that God has for your salvation. So throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus is showing the world what he and the Father have been up to for all eternity. He's revealing the, the, the divine plan. And at the root of this divine plan is the radical love that God has for his people. And this is our second point, his radical love. Jesus displays radical love for his rebellious people, a kind of love that is unrecognizable to the world. The world didn't expect it. The world didn't come up with it. It's not even from this world because it has its origin in the eternal covenant between the Father and the Son. And the world even today with all of its talk about love, it knows nothing about this radical love that Jesus has for his people. And there are two things I want you to know about this radical love. The reason why it's so radical, one is it is different, and two, it is dangerous. It's different because Jesus distinguishes himself from the hired hand. Remember when we looked at the door and there were the thieves and the robbers? Here, Jesus is continuing that metaphor. The thieves and the robbers are the same kind of people as the hired hand who don't really care for the flock. They don't really love God's people. They only care for themselves. And that's why when the wolves come, they just run right away. They just run away. They have great self-love. And we know all about that because that's the cultural air that we breathe today. Love in our day is almost exclusively about you, you, and you. Marriage is about you. It's about your own self-gratification in the eyes of the world, which is why the minute your spouse is not making you happy anymore, the world says, you can just leave. You can just divorce them. Love in the eyes of the world shouldn't cost you anything. There's no sacrifice required. A great author once said, real love is always dangerous because it means opening yourself up to the possibility of being hurt by the one you love. A love that isn't costly isn't love. And how absent is real love in our day? But Jesus more than anyone knows what real love is. He more than anyone knows the cost 
of love because when trouble comes, he doesn't bail on you. He doesn't run away. Instead, he puts himself in danger. He esteems you more important and more valuable than even himself. Unlike the hired hand who, who sees the wolves coming and they just run away, Christ disregards his own life. He puts his own life on the line so that the sheep don't get torn apart. And yet, Christ is the one who gets torn apart for his sheep. His love for us is truly a dangerous kind of love. And we know that during this time, sheep were often kept in these fenced-in areas or they were kept in caves. And then at night or in the evening, the shepherd would count his sheep one by one as they entered into the enclosed area, as they went into the cave. And then when it came time for bed, the shepherd would then lay down, becoming the very gate, the very opening where the sheep are. And isn't that the language used in our text? That Jesus lays down his life. The predators have to get through Jesus in order to get to the flock. And now, this is a very unconventional way of protecting sheep. Um, The world would despise it and know nothing about it. And it seems like if he's the good shepherd, why is he laying his life down for the sheep? Why? What good is he to them if he were to die? It seems like the opposite would be true. If the shepherd dies then it it seems like the sheep are are exposed. It seems like the wolves can get to the flock and they're left exposed. It seems like on the surface, the good shepherd dying for the sheep is no different than the hired hand who just runs away and leaves the flock exposed to all of the troubles of the world. And I want you to know that that's that's the beauty and irony of the gospel right there. The death of the good shepherd leads to the life of the sheep. Just like the death of one man leads to life and salvation for many. And four times, Jesus tells us what it means to be the good shepherd. It means to die for the sheep. And he knows his audience is likely confused. How can you be a good shepherd if you die? That doesn't seem good. That seems cruel. And even the word for good here it carries with it the idea of attractiveness. And so we're supposed to be drawn to and attracted to the idea that he would die for his flock, that he would lay down his life for the sheep. And yet I think the, the reason why he has to repeat it four times is, is to say, yep, you're right. Make no mistake. I am unlike anything you've seen before. I'm not like any of your Old Testament leaders who led you astray to your death. Remember in the Old Testament, the leaders often led Israel astray after idols. And yet Jesus is saying, I'm going to lead myself to death. I'm going to be the one led to death. And yet that is going to be the very thing that will make you live. When Augustine lived, people were, they loved to go to theater. Not very different 
in our time, we love to go to the movie theater, and that's where Bree and I had our first date. Um, and so, in book three of his Confessions, Augustine talks about the idea that people are drawn to tragedy. And we can't really explain why. He says in book three of his Confessions, Stage plays also carry me away, full of images of my miseries and of fuel to my fire. Why is it that man desires to be made sad, beholding doleful and tragic things which yet himself would no means suffer? We love to watch very tragic things, whether it be in the movies or, or if you still go to plays, these very tragic sceneries. We were entertained by that. And yet, it's fine if the main character goes through tragedy, as long as we don't have to go through it. And I think that's the gospel in a, in a nutshell. We are drawn to the greatest tragedy of all, the most radical act of love. The only perfect man put to death for his enemies, and yet by his enemies. The most tragic thing of all is also the most beautiful thing of all and the most attractive thing of all. In his death, we have life. And it is because he died for your sin that you don't have to die for your sin. So let us not despise the cross and its shame, but let our hearts be drawn to the good shepherd who hangs on the cross and he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And then remember what happens. He hangs his head and he says, it is finished. Because he had did all that the Father had commanded him to do. And so the gospel is the greatest tragedy ever known to man. And yet at the same time, it's the most romantic and radical act of love known to man. He did not have to die. And that's really the point he's making in verses 15 and 17. He lays down his life and has authority to take it up again, but it's not being taken from him. He's not being forced to die. No. The reason why he chose to die is because he loves you. It's because he and the Father had planned from all eternity to make sure you knew that. To make sure you know how much he loves you. And so I ask you this evening, do you know this love? Do you know the radical love of Christ toward you? And this is my favorite part. He chose to die for you when you were his enemy. When you were dead in sin. You know, it, it's easy to think that he would lay his life down for you when you feel really sanctified, when you are reading your Bible every morning, when you're praying three times a day. But to know that he died for you when you're not doing any of those things, to know that he died for you when the pressures of life are just beating on your back and you can't breathe, it feels like you're drowning and you don't know what to do, when you have all the pressure and stress at your job, when it feels like your family is falling apart, it is in those moments you need to know 
that he died for you. When you had plans for your life and you thought you had everything figured out, God had already planned to send his son for you. And yet, we can often think the response to radical love is then to go be a radical, go love people radically. And in a sense, that is true. We want to respond to his love out of gratitude. But what I want to impress on your hearts that is that the, the response to radical love is not this big, glamorous, radical act of faith, but just faith. Just believe. The faith the size of a mustard seed even. Because even a weak faith, even a weak faith lays hold of a strong Savior. And so the way the Good Shepherd loves is unconventional. It's unexpected. But it also has radical consequences. His death and resurrection also accomplished something on a macro level, on a grand scale. Something that the prophets longed to look into, that one day he would unite Jew and Gentile into one flock and under one shepherd. And this is our final point, the radical mission Christ came to fulfill. And to show that this was prophesied long ago, let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel 34 verse 12. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country." I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. And so the prophets proclaimed a day when the good shepherd would gather and unite a people to himself from all around the world. And Jesus came to do just that. Now, I say this is a radical mission, not to make all of my headings start with R, but because during this time, that would really be a radical thing. In verses 16 and 17, Jesus says he's bringing other sheep into one fold, and that would be radical. During that time, as you know, Jews and Gentiles, they hated each other. From the time between the last book in the Old Testament and the first book in the New Testament, far from being a period of silence, it was a time characterized by war. And so several Jewish leaders often revolted against Rome. Most of the time they were stamped out. And in our text... 
the Jews are still under Roman occupation. And in their mind, it is quite natural to want nothing to do with a Gentile. Because for hundreds of years, they've been fighting them for independence. So you can imagine the surprise when Jesus says, there are, there are sheep not of this fold that he needs to go call and go gather. They will be looking at Jesus like deer in the headlights. Jesus, what are you talking about? What other sheep are you referring to? Because it can't be the Gentiles. Their bad history made them forget all the promises that God had made in their scriptures, in the Old Testament scriptures, that he would bring the Gentiles in and engraft them into the covenant community. And that's why in verses 19 through 21, they're calling Jesus insane. And like he's possessed by a demon. And even today... When people start talking about unity, that's when the name calling starts. People say, well, if you, don't, if you don't join our cause, if you're not a part of our group, then you're an outsider. We don't want nothing to do with you. You're the other. And yet Jesus came to be the great unifier. He came to bring people together from all different kinds of backgrounds, starting with the most heated rivalry in the first century, Jew and Gentile. And so if Jesus can bring together people like Jews and Gentiles who hate each other as much as they do, then what of all the factions and cliques we have today? Is Christ too weak to bring them together? Is he unable to unite them under one flock? I would say no. His radical love to bring about this radical unity that we have among the people of God. And so real unity might feel downright impossible. And yet, it's not impossible. It's not wishful thinking. Real unity is a reality accomplished by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is saying. He says, the dividing wall of hostility, that has been torn down. God is making one new man in the body of Christ through the cross. So if you want unity, if you're tired of people hating each other and at each other's throats, if you want people to love one another, then we must all come to the foot of the cross where our sinful pride where our crimson stains will be taken away and he will wash us white as snow. And so I leave you with this. Quite simply, don't be left out. Don't be left out of the radical, unifying work of redemption God is doing in the world. And if you don't come to the good shepherd, you will be left out. Death is coming. It's coming for us all. We are going to stand before our maker. And you can try and prolong it and not think about it. And yet you will die, not because you lay your life down, but because God has declared the wages of sin is death. And yet God has also declared that the free gift of eternal life is through the good shepherd 
who gave his life for the sheep that they might live. So come to him and live. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we have all, like sheep, gone astray. We've gone after our own devices. We're often ensnared by the world. And yet you gave us your son as a good shepherd to rule us, to love us, to put us back on the right path. And so we pray that you would come overcome our sin by your love. Grant us to be filled by your Holy Spirit so we might be united in one faith under one Lord, one shepherd. And would it be a testament that there is something different about the covenant community. They have something that the world does not have. And would people be drawn to your church for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.